0: Sandy and I were <clears throat> privileged to be in North of Palmerston North in New Zealand, at the home of the um, bungee jumping—the first place they ever did this off a of railroad trussle, and and uh, what memories I have of them tying my legs, my my ankles, nothing up above, and going out to that ledge and and looking at that turquoise water and the great green valleys and. And uh, thinking, uh, there's nothing between this and 140 feet down, just me flying through the air. And there's something about uh, flying as a bird. I've always thought flying would just be a wonderful thing. So I jumped off and I flew, I flew. I could quote the book of John three times before I hit, hit the water. And uh, it was so smooth and so soft, there was no jerk. It was such a fun thing. I loved it, and I'd do it again in a heartbeat. And uh, I thought there's something this week, I I just look with fascination when I think about what these astronauts have done as we've gone through the years and going down to Canaveral, Houston, haven't been to California, but those are the things that just uh, catch me up when I'm thinking about what it's like to fly in the stratosphere. And so this week I was mesmerized when I thought about a $28 million plane ticket to get up to the edge of the uh, the earth and then to look over and to think what Richard Branson has done. That view, uh, boy, if you could get up there and think about uh, all those wonderful emotions and perspectives that you get. But you get the idea that it's a little tiny human flying in that little tiny ship in this big universe. But I thought, you know, what a what un- unbelievable. Uh, would you go? If you had twenty-eight 000, million dollars to buy, t- would you go? No, no. In interviewing him, they—I uh, uh, I read up a little bit about Richard Branson, and he said somebody asked him, having been up there, would you uh, uh, do you believe that there's a God up there, and you and your understanding of faith, and and he hemmed uh, in hall because I know he wants to get more people to buy into this. Uh, Business he's going to start up, so he has to be sensitive. But uh, uh, he is an atheist, but he has some proclivity to say, uh, "I don't, I don't know, I don't think there is a God." But he believes in evolution sincerely, which he, as a scientist, he would. But he said, uh, "I see myself as a humanitarian who loves people," and. Maybe one day someone will be able to convince me there is a God and that there is a particular God. But to me, I just love people, and to me, that's the most important thing. Well, in contrast, uh, there's another guy going up this Tuesday. And so, Jeff, uh, if you have money, what do you do with extra money? You buy buy a rocket ship and take off... Amazon, that's what you're doing when you buy the books of Amazon. You're supporting this rocket uh, industry. So, But unlike, um, unlike Richard, Jeff is uh, more private. And when asked about his faith, nobody will say, he will not disclose where he and his wife, uh, what they believe. And so you never hear Jeff Bezos talking about anything except success, success, and success. But uh, he, has, uh, he has some kind of Christian background, whether, whether it, he was married in a Catholic church and he's got some, uh, some people that in the Silicon Valley, I'm sure there's a lot of ministries going on trying to reach him, but he's very private and he doesn't share much at all. And so he said, though, he says that the smartest people are constantly revising their understanding. They're reconsidering a problem they thought they already solved, and they're open to new points of view, new information, new ideas, and contradictions and challenges to their own way of thinking. And yet, somehow, in his openness, like a lot of men of our age, they're open to ideas, but they're closed to certain ideas, especially when regards the faith. And when you get up in space and you shut off this whole idea that there's a creator, and all that He's doing to make you enjoy His very creation. I think of what David said in Psalm eight: "O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! When You have set glory in the heavens, through the praise of children and infants, through the praise of children and infants, You have established a stronghold against Your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Um, but when I consider the work of Your hands," The work of your fingers, the moon, the stars in which you have set in place. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. And going up into space isn't anything like what Jesus did when he came down from glory and he came to our realm because he knew that that journey was going to accomplish something that no other man would do. And the idea that Jesus left his throne of glory and took on a vessel like your human flesh, my human flesh, and he did it for a reason. But when God sent his son, Jesus said something that Jeff Bezos didn't know or or, uh, Richard didn't know that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. We're in the middle of a discussion where we're thinking about what does it mean to have faith in God, to to know that Jesus said that this is the work of God, that you would believe in him whom he has sent, to believe in Jesus Christ as the focal point, the center point of all that we do here in the church. And yet, knowing what that means is to listen, listen, love, love, learn, learn, who Christ is. And that's the major question of the New Testament when Jesus would always say to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And you'd get the cultural response. And then he would personalize it and he says, but who do you say that I am? And it's that understanding that we're moving into that when Jesus would invite us to believe Jesus is interested in our faith, and he's looking for faith. He's looking to strengthen those who have faith in him. And so we're talking about the difference between faith and belief and trust. And so thinking about these differences, you may have faith, and you may have different levels of faith, which we'll look at, but you may have a belief which may be informed or misinformed or still developing, but the idea is you move towards this trust issue with a particular focus that Jesus wants you to know and experience. Not just a belief system, not just a doctrinal system, not just an institutional system, not a cultural system. He's interested in you knowing him personally in such a way that your heart is thrilled and set free to love him with all your heart. And yet, and yet, there's a lot of people who struggle with doubt. And in our day and age, when you have scientists and the secular world coming in to question that, that your their definition of faith is to believe without any evidence. Just believe. And so a lot of people read the scriptures that says, We walk by faith, not by sight, thinking you can be keep your eyes closed or not deal with reality, but that's not biblical faith. And so we're looking at what biblical faith is because Jesus gives evidence to Thomas who said, I want to know that the one who died for me on that cross, if he is resurrected, I want to see his scars. I want to put my finger in the, in the holes. And so Jesus, in this painting by Michelangelo, Ressi di Caraggio, who's a famous, famous Italian painter, he just captures this moment to think if you were Jesus inviting Thomas to touch him, saying, I want you to believe. Whatever you need to believe, I'm going to give you that evidence. And that's true of Jesus. He does not want you to have blind faith, naive faith, little faith. And so we've talked about this. But our tension is we live in a technological world. We live in a Western world. And the tension that we have often as it's posed is if you have faith versus you have intelligence and reason. And often these are uh, juxtaposed against each other. And so it's not that we as Christians favor one or the other. We want faith versus reason. We have an integrated faith it's not religion versus science it's a comprehensive view that god is integrating the whole cosmos through his son jesus but that false dichotomy is built on something that i wish i could get into i won't but i'm going to open the door and let you guys follow this because this is uh, helpful for me uh, by and and discussed by a man named peter park and i'll tell you about peter in a minute but It means that you have to be aware of the fact that there's a way of thinking about knowledge. Not just scientific knowledge, and and not religious knowledge or spiritual knowledge. There's a way to think about the nature of knowing, and that knowing, that epistemology, that the idea of how you know what you know, and how you know what you know is to be credible so that you can believe it and then trust it. These are the issues for us as Christians, because... Some people have just a blind, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. If you're at that mindset, you will not be able to penetrate and reach this culture today because it's of a different level. But there's models of knowledge, different ways of knowing. But the real question is, how do you communicate what you know? And so I've asked you before, if you could communicate why you believe in Jesus, could you do that? Could you explain why Jesus did what he did so that people who don't have faith would come to understand why do we do what we do? Why do we come to Sunday morning and we worship and we value this one called Jesus Christ? Faith, belief, and trust. I mention these only as the precursor to one more thing that's not listed. It's assumed it's the fact that you have a personal, intimate, live relationship where Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, calls you, teaches you, guides you, assures you that your, your faith is not just a cognitive thing, not just a left-brain thing, not just a jeopardy answer. It's like you have met Jesus Christ and you've bent the knee, and you say, this one is the one that God has sent, and I believe in Him. And knowing Christ, as Jesus would say, is life. Not knowing Jesus is life. But these ways of knowing. I'm going to add one more dimension to this to help you think through things with me. And so I'm going to introduce it and leave it here, because I met with... Peter Park, who is an American sociologist. Uh, Park, he's Korean. Uh, Peter Park. And so I met with him in Tokyo. And and Peter was a, a very instrumental man in the field of participatory action research at Fielding University. And Peter introduced to me these three ways of knowing. And he talked about there's a rational way of knowing, that you have data, You have knowledge. You have information. You can Google God and get that data set, that explanation in text form. But there's a reflective way of knowing that when you ponder and meditate and go to prayer, that there's something that takes place in the human spirit when you are really meeting with God spiritually, and you're reflecting, and you're asking God questions, and you have Inquiries that no one can answer except the Lord himself. That reflective moves into this third way of knowing. It's a relational way of knowing. And that's what we're doing in the Wednesday night. It's a relational discussion where it's back and forth. It's reciprocal. It's mutual. It's it's kind of that Mobius dynamic that says, you're bringing something a question and i'm i'm joining you in the question so it's an inductive group discussion where we learn together and this is the whole basis for participatory action research which means you grow in developing your knowledge and that knowledge is about life that knowledge is about wisdom that knowledge is about learning in such a way that you're you're really trying to align your world with the world of the Holy Spirit. And that work, as Peter and I would talk about that in that office in Tokyo for six hours, I came to realize that I'm a Christian and Peter is a scholar. But Peter missed it. As as great of a man as he was, and I loved Peter, he really helped me quite a bit in understanding and sparring with the thinking. There's one thing that he left out that he could not bring to the discussion. And it's something that you have to bring to the discussion. There is a knowing that is revelational. You see, we not only rely on science and technology and our education, we rely on this book. And this book goes above every library on top of the roof because this is not a man-made book. Science takes the position above nature and looks down at nature. Science is the creature looking at the creation, trying to explain the creation, trying to predict the creation. But science is going to discover what they know, but not revelation. Revelation is a declaration. It's an exposition of who God is. And therefore, your faith encountering this Lord of the universe will not only in this book reveal who he is, but this book will reveal who you are. Because this is a relational book. And this relational knowledge means that if God's revealing who he is, he's going to reveal who you are and who we are as the body of Christ. It's a wonderful way of thinking, but because... This means that God Himself will be the shepherd, the counselor, the Holy Spirit who guides us into the enlightenment that we need to live in a fallen world. This enlightenment is God breathed, as all scripture is inspired by God. And so to, I'm going to stop there because I could go on, but I'm going to say that for us, we have been invited to hear those words follow me participate with me, experience me, and get out of your little cognitive doctrinal box and experience who Christ is. So we're doing more than flying to the stratosphere. We're going all the way up to the kingdom of God. We're in this position and today I want to say, review, that we've, we're, we've got these stages of faith because not everybody is in the same place. And so for those we've gone over that there's non-existent faith, there are scientists who believe in evolution who don't believe in revelation. They don't believe in Christ. And so we live in an age where atheism never existed in the New Testament. Uh, when Jesus walked around, it was not cool to be an atheist. It didn't even exist. But now there's a prevalence of people that are influencing the way people think. They've cut off God. So we know that there are people who have no faith. And Jesus would talk about people who have dead faith. Dead faith is a faith that doesn't work, doesn't respond to God. There's a people who have vain faith that they believe, but it's ineffective. And there are people who are void of faith, that there's no grace, no life, nothing there. And this was the problem with the medieval church that had lost its way and became... The dark ages. But for us, we move into that part of salvation faith. And sa- saving faith, or salvific faith, as the adjective is, it takes you into an experience where you leave one way of knowing, and then all of a sudden you're opened up to a kingdom of God's way of knowing, where it is definitely relational. Because you can't be saved without knowing the Savior. And so, putting your faith in Christ means you belong to Him. He belongs to you. And that saving faith means that you moved, you move, and you move. You follow, you walk, you pursue, you seek. These are action words. And in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the word faith is not a noun. I said that last week, that faith is a noun, but when studying the Hebrew version, I couldn't find the verb faith. I uh, couldn't find the noun faith. It, faith is called, there's no verb to faith, but the verb is to be faithful. And so it's always a response to uh, that which you have believed because it moves into this relationship. But there are people who are fools who say there is no God. There are people who are in argument with God and the fighter. And they are aware, they may know God, but there's a resistance. And I want to say again that inside of the heart of everyone who's fallen out of the kingdom of heaven, somewhere inside of you there is a fist, a fist at some level that says, no way, I'm going to give you total control. Don't be surprised about that, by that fist because there's a resistance in all of us. Because we all have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. So don't be surprised by that awareness of resistance. But you may have an acknowledgement of a higher power. But that acknowledgement of a higher power is still far away from the kingdom and is, is in darkness. There is no gospel in that. So there's a movement And as you find people open to discuss and and seek and inquire, there may be some work by the Spirit of God drawing people to himself that they're open to investigate. The Marxist who came into the Bible study in Brazil with Aldo Berndt, a missionary in uh, Sao Paulo, came into that Bible study for the purpose of destroying the Christians. You ever met somebody like that? (laughs) And he would uh, sit down with a group of the Brazilians, young Christians, and uh, Aldo would turn to John one and say, uh, "Well, let's read John one." And uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was was with God, and the Word was God. And 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 this Marxist guy said, "I don't believe that. I don't believe that." And so. The young believers say, well, what do we do? And so he said, well, let's continue on. He says, and there's light that came into the world that enlightens every man. And the Marxist said, this is silly. This is silly myth. I don't believe that either. And through that discussion, three or four times, he he would interrupt and disturb the Bible study with his questions. "Well, Well, if you believe, then why is the church so ineffective here in Brazil? Why do we have all these poor people and God seems to be neglected? He's nowhere. I don't believe any of this stuff. And he was very aggressive. And finally, at the end of that 40 minutes of terrible interrogation, the Marxists had all these Christians paralyzed. The Bible study leader said, "Uh, okay, I get it, I get it. You don't believe in God? So what, give me the percentage. He said, what? He says, what percentage do I get? And so the Marxist screwed up, uh, scrunched up his face, and said, what do you mean? He says, "You're here to tell me 100 percent certain that there is no God and that we're 100 percent in error." And he said, "No, I'm, no. I no." He said, "Well, what percentage would you give me? Three percent, five percent?" And he said, "Well, if you give me any percentage, it means this: that that percentage is the same percentage that you could be wrong. So you take the ceiling." and you put all known knowledge on the ceiling and all unknown knowledge on the ceiling, knowledge of music, knowledge of architecture, knowledge of chemistry, knowledge of biology, knowledge of, 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 of legislation and law, knowledge of, of all, all sorts of culture, all things, and you put all that knowledge up there, draw a circle on how much you know of that knowledge. How, much is, how big is your circle? And the Marxist said, um, "Not very much. Just I said, could it be that God exists outside of your knowledge? And if that's true, you have not met the God outside of your circle. There is no God in your circle, and therefore you cannot say there is no God. You're not an atheist. You're an agnostic. You don't know. You're ignorant. So don't declare that you." you know there is no God. And with that, they continued in the Bible study for the next six weeks. Kicking and screaming, that fist was a flying. Didn't believe any of it. Then after about five weeks, came, the Marxist came to the Bible study and said, all right. Um, to the Bible study leader, said, said, well, all right, what? He says, all right, I give in. I, oh, you give in to what? He said, I I believe. He says, what do you believe? He says, I, I have to believe that uh, at least what I'm studying here, uh, that Jesus is who he says he is. And when he would say, I don't believe, the Bible study leader would say, I'm not asking you to believe. I'm asking you to understand. And then if what you understand you want to reject, that's true. But do you understand what you say you believe? That Jesus Christ was sent here on earth to die for the sins and the fallenness of man, to take him out of the foolishness and the darkness and change that realm of knowledge into one of the kingdom. And the Marxist said, I believe. With that, he moved towards the cross and he admitted. And once you have that admission... He accepted and he repented of his sins, and he came to Christ. Aldo, Aldo uh, led him... <coughs> uh, sorry, <coughs> the Bible study led him, and that man is Aldo Burnt. Aldo became the national director of the Portuguese ministries in Brazil. And so you find that there's a movement towards conviction, towards growing and maturing in faith. And we all start somewhere. So I'm going to give you, if you haven't had a chance to share or understand or explain the gospel to somebody who doesn't know, I want to give you a little tool that will help you. So take three fingers, put them up there, and go B, B, B. Repeat after me, B, B, B. Now for those of you who have a problem memorizing... Let's try it again. B, B, B. Got it? Nobody has trouble with that? Here's your Bs. The first B is this, that you were built for relationships. You were built. God designed you in the garden from the get-go to have a personal relationship with God, where God would say to you, I made you, and I want to communicate with you to tell you how much I love you. And that your purpose on earth is to image and walk with me in such a way that you know who I am. And I will tell you who I am. And I will tell you who you are. And in that relationship, you will come to have a faith that will understand and enjoy the very life I gave to you. That built for relationship, you would also reflect me in how I relate to you with how you relate to other people. That as I'm gracious and kind to you, you will also be gracious and kind to other people. As I trust you, you will trust other people. As I love you, people will love you as well. And so the community that I want is a humanity that reflects the Trinity where we are the kingdom people. You were built for a relationship. And God wants you to be loved with a love that you didn't earn, therefore you can never lose. That's your security. The problem is... That's not the world we live in. Because the second thing is, we are broken people. Our trust is broken. Our knowledge is broken. Our wills are broken. We don't have the strength to do what we need to do. Knowing what's right, somehow temptation gets in and we do what's wrong. Ask that to the philosopher. Ask that to the scientist. Why why do people know when there's a right thing to do? Why do we do the opposite? And knowing the opposite, why do we not do the right? There's something about our not knowing that locks us into a faith that doesn't work. We're broken in our relationships. Instead of loving people, instead of trusting people, instead of respecting people, we fail to love. We fail to give grace. We fail to be there for people we know we should be there for. We call it sin. And sin is the breaking of love. Sin is me moving towards you with my interest at heart, at your expense. So I'm using you. I'm manipulating you. I want what you have for me, and that's a failure to love. As opposed to love, which means I move towards you with your interest in mind at my expense, and therefore this idea that we're broken in relationship. Not only have we broken in a relationship with God, and we fall short; we also fall short in our relationship with ourselves, and we fall short with our relationships with others. And you see this in the garden. So Adam started to blame Eve, and Eve started to blame. Adam, and so there's conflict from the get-go. And so the idea of how do you get out of this conflict? Well, there's a bridge. The bridge is that Jesus Christ came for broken people. And that Jesus Christ knew no sin, but he was broken by your sin, by my sin. And it says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, That not only was he broken for our sins, but he was broken so that he would bring us back into relationship with God. Jesus Christ came, as N.T. Wright would say, to restore the world to rights. And those rights meant that you would be brought back into relationship where you would have a relationship with God. Not only would you have a relationship, but that you would enjoy the beauty and the goodness of creation. You would seek social justice to make sure that things were morally done right, that there's an ethics that, uh, that you would sense that the world is made right and there would be rest, and there would be a hunger for a spiritual development that you would be mature, competent, and that for you could move in the world with wisdom and grace. And that Jesus would bring about salvation. that's the BBB. Got it? So we were built for a relationship, we we're broken in a relationship, and Jesus Christ comes to restore those relationships. So whatever you need, whatever is damaged, whatever is dysfunctional, Jesus Christ wants to restore that. And that comes by you having faith in Him. And by putting your faith in Him, it turns to a belief in the promise that He would do that for you. And trusting Jesus means that you move not only from a faith to a belief, but to move into this trust leads you into listening and following and obeying and experiencing him. And therefore you move in knowing God. Well, as you go through these stages... You come to a saving faith, and the first thing that happens to, like the Thessalonians, they came to faith in Christ, and Paul wanted to assure them. What happens when somebody who doesn't know Christ comes to Christ, and the first thing is you have to ask, are they saved? Do they have saving faith, or do they just have a head knowledge, but there's no action, there's no evidence of that? Well, if you go to these verses, and you can write them down, I'll list them for you. These are the passages that you want to know if you're going to communicate to our world. 1 Peter 3.18, I'm going to explain this one, and I'll go through these. But 1 Peter 3.18 is a key, key passage because it means this. How do you know if you're going to heaven? How do you know if you die tonight, you would be accepted And forgiven. And so that question that every young believer needs to know is, do I have a faith that's strong enough, uh, solid enough, assured enough, that I know that if I were to die tonight, God would not close the gates on me and dismiss me? I never knew you. And therefore, there are different attitudes and people have different thinking about this answer. But for you, I want to say that God wants you to know You can know before you die that you're going to go into heaven with your name in the book of life. There is a promise of assurance based on revelation. This promise comes from the very Lord himself. It says, He who believes in me shall never die, but I will raise him again on the last day. Let's look at this. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And if you're in Christ, you too are made alive in the Spirit. But if you're in Christ, this is what takes place. Now, let me break this down a little bit. You think about this question, Jesus Christ suffered once for sins. So the question is simple. When did Jesus suffer? What year was it when Jesus died? Do, 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 do. Let's say 33 AD, depending on your calendar, 30, 33 AD. But he's young, but there in time. And when Jesus died, um, when he died, how many sins had you committed? <laughs> When Jesus died in 33, and you were born, I was born in 1953. When were you born? Fill in the blank. When Jesus died for your sins, how many of your sins had you committed? Answer? Zero. Why? You weren't here. Which of your sins did Jesus die for? Did he die for those before you came to Christ? Yes. Did he die for those after you came to Christ? Yes. He died one time, and that one death was comprehensive enough to take care and cancel any debt that you had because of your sin. It's called forgiveness. And that means. That there is no sin that you had committed or will have currently committing or will commit that isn't covered by the blood of Christ on the cross. Because that means that there is the removal of fear of judgment. And if Christ died for sins based on the revelation that God sent his Son to do that work on the cross, and he says, "If you believe me, I will remove that debt, I will remove that wrath, I will remove that ignorance, I will remove that fist arm, and I will take you out of the darkness, and I will bring you into my marvelous kingdom of light." When the decision was made to, cancel, when was the decision made to cancel the debt of your sins? It's not when you accept Christ. It's when Christ died for you. It's outside of your experience. Historically, that took place. And if you were there that day that they crucified Christ and you put your finger across that wood beam, there would be a splinter. It actually happened. And therefore, to have faith is one thing. To believe is another thing. But to believe that Jesus Christ came to earth as a real man, as the son of God, and he died, that's history. That's history. The Encyclopedia Britannica will tell you that. But the question is, did he die for your sins? And if you have faith and you believe that Jesus Christ died and removes your sins, that's not history. That's salvation. And if you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and you believe that He resurrected, resurrected again from the grave, it means that you also believe that Jesus Christ will give you new life in Him. As He was resurrected and you believe that, all of the sins, how many you have, are all gone. But the life of Christ has now come. If anyone is in Christ, He's a new creation. Old things pass away. You see, faith... Is in the promise sore, and that's Jesus. Belief is in the persuasion. Faith is external, it comes to you with the promise, just like in marriage. Will you marry me? Yes, I do. You're persuaded, you're convinced. There is no scientific analysis in this relationship. It's like you want to love the people you love, and that's the spirit of Christ. It's not rational. It's not logical. It's super-rational and super-logical because grace doesn't make logical sense. Grace accepts the unacceptable. And you, beloved, are accepted in the beloved. That's good news. And therefore, belief is the persuasion. Jesus has persuaded me. And when you are persuaded by Christ then you move into trust and knowing. If you're not persuaded by Christ, you're over here, long away, far away from the kingdom. But trust is that participatory response. I'm with you, Jesus. I trust you, Jesus. And I'm going to look for you in your coming, Jesus. And therefore, for us, We have, Christians have, a way of knowing that gives you a subtleness in your soul that says, His mercy is over me. His banner is over me. His grace is over me. And by the grace of God, I have blessed assurance. That's what faith does. Faith that's moving towards strong, solid, convinced faith. That's what your inheritance is, church. And as we do so, for young believers, you begin to grow and understand. And, and the last thing is this. For a young believer who's just starting out, what's the first thing to hit? Satan says, I'm angry at this. I don't like this at all. So if Satan gets involved and says, uh-uh, uh-uh, that's not true. That's not true. And so Satan wants to have doubt come in. He wants to distort the truth. It's a system of disinformation like you wouldn't believe. God didn't say that, did he? And so you begin to wonder. And with temptation, you have to help young believers understand how to walk with God and grow through this tension of how do I handle this transition and that's what's taking place when Paul would say not only to the Colossians and the Philippians and the Galatians and the Corinthians and, and the Thessalonians and, and the Chesterlanders, he says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Your sin and your temptation, we all know because we've all been there. But it humbles us to say this is a common ailment. And God is faithful, who will not be able who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with that temptation will also provide a way of escape. If you trust, if you don't trust, you'll give in to sin. He'll provide a way of escape. If you look for it, But if you're not looking for it because you're not in the relationship, so people have to grow into this. How do, how do I walk by faith? How do I grow in this? So that you'll be able to endure it. And here's a passage, the last passage for the Bible study on Wednesday that we talked about. That that Paul said to Timothy that the goal of our instruction for young believers, Timothy, you teach the people in Ephesus this, three things. The goal of our instruction is one, love from a pure heart. God wants you to be a lover. And the instruction is your pastor loves you. Your shepherds love you. Your deacons love you. The church loves you. you. You are to be involved in a loving community that's learning how to love. And so the goal of our instruction is, one, to love and increase your ability to love. Two, have a good conscience, a clear conscience. You know what's morally right and you know what's morally wrong. But you have the power of the Holy Spirit to enlighten you to say, uh-uh, that's not me. Uh -uh, Uh-uh, that's not right. Uh Uh-uh, that's wrong. And you have the courage to speak out. And the third thing is, you have a sincere faith. Without pretense. You know what you know. You know who you know. You know why you know that. And you trust what you know. Because the faith is the promise. Belief is the persuasion. And trust is, I'm with you. Count me in. Therefore, as you go into this, as we look at next week, we're going to look at what happens to young believers, and we'll introduce it, and then I'll leave it here. The, the idea is that there are people who have weak faith, people who are wavering in their faith. People don't understand that the worldly way of thinking is not the biblical way of thinking, so it's a worldly faith. And then they start to wander and lose their faith and eventually withers. You need to know how to help people grow in faith. And that's the point. We don't have to do research to find out. We don't have to go up into space. But we have the book that will reveal how to grow in faith. Well, we will continue our story as we go into next week and think about how Paul worked with the Thessalonians. You'll see that. Let's close the word of prayer. Father, take these words Water them. Make them reality for us as we think and give us the mind of Christ. Help us grow, Father. Help our unbelief. Help us to become strong. We ask these things for your glory and our growth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.